Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Cross Point Baptist Church this morning, and we're glad you're here today. It's a great day to be in God's house, and we're thankful for everyone that's here this morning. Pastor Scott had an allergic reaction, and he will not be here today, so he's doing okay at home, but uh, uh, thought better of not being here. So we'll pray for him and uh, just pray that uh, things will get better and back to normal. So, uh, but we're glad you're here. You know, uh, Andrew and I were, were talking, and, and we miss Pastor Scott for sure, but we want uh, everybody to know in this room that God's word's going to go forth. We're still going to praise the Lord and worship him as we should, and that's what Pastor Scott wants as well. So we are glad you're here, and I want to talk about just a couple of things, and then we'll hand it over to the praise team to uh, lead us in song. But this week, or this month rather, is uh, teacher Sunday School Teacher Appreciation Month. And so there are cards out on the uh, uh, Welcome Center, so please pick one up and uh, write a note to one of the teachers here, either a current teacher or maybe one uh, from the past. I, I've got a couple that I've written out so far, and uh, it d just took me a couple of minutes, really. So please do it. I think uh, not only do they deserve our honor for what they've done over the years, and uh, they might be a retired teacher in a sense, but uh, we want to remember that they had an impact on people that probably impact you. And so uh, we want to make sure that they are uh, honored in a special way. So uh, fill one out, take it out at the end of the service, and, and bring it back next week, and we'll honor them at the uh, end of the month. So uh, remember that. And also I want to mention our golf outing, and uh, for those of you that are signed up and playing uh, and by the way if you're not signed up to play you can sign up it's not too late and we'll take new players uh, for sure but uh, you know don't forget to uh, sign up team members uh, turn in your uh, shirt sizes for your team and the money turn in the money on the on the golf outing and we thank you for those that have already done that the order is going to go in tomorrow morning for the shirt so if you don't turn in a, a shirt size no shirt uh, for that team member or team. So just remember that. So it'll be a great day. We have a lot of fun on that day, and uh, we share the gospel message as well, and, and uh, everything we do, we want to share God's word. But let's have a word of prayer, praying for Pastor Scott and then also for our uh, services uh, this morning, that God would just be honored in what we do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity this morning, a special day because it's your day. We pray that you would just be with each one that's here this morning as we uh, begin to worship you in song. May our attitudes, our hearts be open to your spirit, Lord, as we uh, lift our song, our voices up to praise. Uh, praise you. We just pray that you would uh, help us as the word goes forth, as Brother Brad will be bringing the message that we apply it to our lives today, that, that we can be changed because of your word. And so we thank you for that. Be with Pastor Scott. Give him a quick recovery that, that he would be able to get back to uh, uh, us as a, a congregation as quickly as possible. And, and uh, we thank you that he's uh, doing okay, but we just pray that you give him a quick healing, Father. And so we pray now that you would just be with us, be with the music, be with the worship, be with every aspect of our worship to you today. May you get the honor and the glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. 
Good morning, church. I am excited to be here this morning. I wanted to take just a minute. Our, our Sunday school class, Pastor Scott's put a plug out there a couple of times for the book we're going through called God's Devil. And today we had a great discussion in our class just talking about how um, certain aspects in occult religion, which is really every religion that isn't biblical Christianity, um, to some extent, um, every one of them would fall into that category. But we just kind of talked about some central ideas that went into each of those. And then we turned around and talked about how easy it is for us as people to focus our attention on different things in life and to be led astray into these um, different aspects because the reality is is that you and I were all created with one main goal by our creator and that was to worship. Worship is what we do every day, every minute of our day, whether we know it or not. It's what our focused attention's on. It's what we're, some of the things we came up with is worship is what we're willing to submit to. It's where our passions are. Um, and worship is all these things. And oftentimes we only think of music as worship, but our lives are worship, which is why we're commanded in Romans chapter 12 to live our lives as a living sacrifice to God. It's to offer our whole beings to God in worship. And so this morning, we're going to take a time to kind of uh, focus our minds on Christ. And I would encourage you as we sing these songs this morning that, that we really enjoy the fact that we are living out our created purpose and being able to offer worship in the form of music back to our creator God who loved us so much that he created us to glorify him through song and through our lives. So would you stand with the praise team this morning? Our first song is Death Was Arrested, and we get the pleasure of singing back to Christ how what he did for us on the cross is what changed us when the death that we deserved was brought under submission at the cross. Alone in my sorrow and dead in my sin, lost without hope with no place to begin. Your love made a way to let mercy come in. When death was arrested, my life began. Act was redeemed, only beauty remained. My orphan heart was given a name. My moaning grew quiet, my feet rose to dance. When death was arrested, my life began. Oh, your grace, so free, washes over. Watch it. 
to you this morning, Lord, knowing that being created for worship, it is what you desire from us, Lord, that we would magnify your holy name who deserves all the glory and praise that we can offer to you. Lord, we pray that our hearts and minds have been fixed on you through the songs we've sung. Lord, and now as we open your word, God, that we would be changed by your spirit as those words be uh, are applied to our lives and lived out, God. May you give us the strength and faith to be transformed, but also faithful to live out the commands of your word. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. As I get situated here, I want to thank Pastor Scott. I know this was unexpected, uh, but every time that I have an opportunity to present God's word and to preach, 
uh, it is a blessing. So I want to thank Pastor and, and certainly Cross Point Baptist Church for the opportunity to, to worship with you through the preaching of the word. Last week I had the opportunity to preach at uh, Redeeming Grace Church. That's the church plant started by the Hargises, the Wares, and McCoys. And I'm, I'm happy to report to you that God is blessing that church. Um, 1 Timothy 3 says that if a man desires to be an elder or a bishop or a pastor, it's a good thing. They desired to start a church for the glory of God. And I can tell you that uh, God is blessing that church just like he's blessing us. And it made me think, I was standing up there, I was very humbled um, to think that uh, we've had families that have gone from this church to serve uh, as pastors. You've got the Childresses uh, down in Panama along with the, the Hargis family, Bill Hargis's family, but uh, you've got the McCoys, the Wares, and, and the Hargises that went out to uh, Redeeming Grace Church, but we've also got uh, young men that are sharing the Word of God in our high school. Uh, we had Andrew last year with The Way, and now uh, Jack uh, Gidley, who's part of our youth group, he's leading The Way along with uh, one of the friends. It's just a blessing to see God working in and amongst the members of this church, sharing God's Word, because it's not about our glory. It's not about the glory of Cross Point Baptist Church. It's about the glory of God. And uh, that message is at the center of today's sermon. So with the, the opportunity to preach to you this morning, I'd like you to turn to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, I've titled this message as the superiority of humility. That may sound a bit contradictory. That is on purpose. We live in a society today that does not highly value humility. It doesn't promote it. It's not only disregarded and discouraged in today's society, it's thought, it's thought to be downright pathetic and even ridiculed as a weakness by some. Pride, on the other hand, is very much encouraged. It is very much exalted. Uh, it's considered to be probably the highest virtue. When you watch the football game later today, you'll see people pounding their chests about how great they are and the wonderful things that they've done. But it's not just in the area of sports. It's in every area and aspect of our culture. Pride is uh, exalted, lifted up. We live in a society that celebrates and commends the disregard and disobedience to God's word. And they celebrate it in a month called Pride Month. We live in a world that is extremely proud of its total disregard of its creator, and it's completely and utterly enamored with self-esteem, self-aggrandizement, and self-fulfillment. However, I'm here to tell you this morning, God's word has something very different to say about pride and about humility. I'm here to tell you this morning that if you are doing things to lift up your own name, or even up to, to lift up some other worthy institution here on earth, like Point Baptist Church or whatever, fill in the blank, if you're doing anything other than something for the glory of God, you are wasting your time and you're being disobedient to the Lord as well. In particular, 
The life, the words, and the ministry of Jesus Christ is given to us in the word of God, teaches us exactly the opposite of what the world teaches us about pride and about humility. So let's examine God's word this morning. And we're going to do that by first looking at John chapter 13. Before I read the, the first few verses for you, let's have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity to present your word. I pray that you will settle my heart and my mind to focus in on what you would have us to consider. That is the humility and the love of your precious son who did not regard equality with you something to be grasped, but laid it aside to humble himself so that he could save us from our sins, a, save, a salvation that we don't deserve. I pray today, Lord, that you will impress upon our hearts how we should humbly serve you and glorify you. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we dive into John chapter 13, I do want to set the table. Um, as you've heard us say numerous times here at Cost Point, a critical part of understanding any passage of Scripture is understanding the context in which it's given. So to that end, we need to briefly understand the context of John chapter 13 so that we can interpret it correctly. So I'm going to briefly review the first 12 chapters of John. Now, some of you are very nervous. You're thinking, okay, this is going to take a while. I promise you, I will be brief, I will be biblical, and then I will be seated. That's what I learned at Pacific Garden Mission. So let's look at the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is a very unique book of the Bible. Every book of the Bible is unique. Everyone is special. Everyone has a purpose. Every book of the Bible is extremely precious in our hands. But the Gospel of John is very unique and, in my eyes, one of my favorite books. It's one of the four books called the Gospels, the other three being Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All four of these Gospel books provide perfect biographies of the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as many of you know, the word gospel means good news. And all four gospels provide us with the good news that God, who is rich in mercy toward us and loves the world so much that he gave his one and only son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. They won't be separated from God forever by their sin. Instead, they can be saved by making Jesus Christ the Lord of their life. They can enjoy eternal life in heaven rather than eternal damnation in hell. That's the gospel. You have that opportunity today to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. Make him the Lord of your life and be saved from your sins. The gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke are similar to one another and they're grouped together. They are called the synoptic Gospels because of the way that they tell the biography of Jesus. The Synoptic Gospels are labeled as such because they have a similar viewpoint and chronology in which they describe the life of Jesus. Synoptic, sin meaning together, optic meaning view. They have a similar view of the life of Jesus Christ. In particular, the Synoptic Gospels give us the life of Jesus from the perspective of a human biographer, someone here on earth 
writing about the events of Jesus Christ's life. The Gospel of John, however, is different. It is the biography of Jesus, but it gives us that biography from a heavenly perspective. Now, don't get me wrong. The Apostle John was a human being. He wrote the Gospel himself. But the Holy Spirit, who inspired and breathed out all Scripture, ultimately superintended that Gospel of John to be written as if a heavenly biographer was describing the life of Jesus. Because of that unique heavenly perspective, the Gospel of John records several different, distinct, and exclusive events than the other three Gospels record. So, for example, today's passage, John chapter 13, is one of those unique passages and events that none of the other three Gospels present. The unique passages in John's Gospel provides us with additional information to help us better understand the, the certain events and teachings in the synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In many ways, the Gospel of John is supplementary and complementary to the synoptic Gospels. It's supplementary because it supplies scenes and information and provides additional clarity and purpose behind the narrative accounts in the synoptic Gospels. It's complementary because it provides the rest of the story in some of these situations. It includes many theological and spiritual insights into why Jesus did what he did and why he said what he said and where he went. It explains things in more detail to give us additional information. For example, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all begin their biographies of Jesus either by describing his human genealogy, by giving the accounts of when he was born, or like Mark's Gospel, by immediately describing his first acts of ministry. John, however, begins his biography of Jesus quite differently. He begins before Genesis. You can think of the beginning of the Gospel of John as the prequel to the Old Testament because it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is before the beginning. In the beginning, Jesus existed. The Word existed before Genesis. And the Word was with God, Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. This heavenly perspective of Jesus helps us to understand that even though Jesus was born as a baby in Bethlehem, he was also the second person of the Godhead who existed before time began. One other important note about the Synoptic Gospels, they tend to follow a stricter chronology in the retelling of the events of the life of Jesus. While John is driven more by following the recurring themes and events in his life. Again, John is more compelled to demonstrate that Jesus is the Son of God and to describe the general rejection of that truth by the masses of people who encountered him, but also to describe the individual cases of acceptance and embracing of this truth by those who were his genuine believers and followers. So John's gospel is very unique. That's where we're going to be this morning, in the gospel of John. It gives us that divine, heavenly perspective of Jesus. 
In John 20, 31, you have the, the thesis statement, the reason why John wrote his gospel. He says this, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The point of the gospel of John is so that you can know that Jesus is the Son of God. And so that believing in that, you can have life in his name. The purpose of John's gospel will be critical for us as we consider John chapter 13. Now, before we dive into 13, let me just say, the first 12 chapters of John's gospel give us an account of how Jesus was presented as the Son of God to different individuals and people groups and how they reacted to him, particularly those who opposed him. John chapter 12 talks about the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem and the ending of his public ministry during the last week of his life on earth before his crucifixion. John chapters 13 through 16 gives us the, dis the distinct and very unique events and conversations that Jesus shared with his disciples apart from the crowds, apart from the teeming people to describe what was going on in the hearts and minds of those disciples, to give an impression of that. The majority of these intimate personal interactions and teachings are only found here in the Gospel of John. They're not found in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. John uses five chapters, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, nearly 25% of his gospel account to describe what happened in this private setting the night before his betrayal, his arrest, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. This is a very special and unique setting that only John gives us. They give us an exclusive view of the extraordinary instructions, promises, and warnings that Jesus privately gave to his disciples on that faithful night. You can think of John chapters 13 through 16 as the last will and testament of Jesus. And John chapter 17 is Jesus praying to the Father for him to fulfill the things that he had just shared with his disciples. That magnificent prayer in John 17 is a prayer that Jesus makes for himself, that he makes for his disciples, and he makes for everyone who would follow after them to believe in him, including you and me. So as John chapter 12 ends and John chapter 13 begins, Jesus and his disciples have withdrawn from the masses of people to celebrate the final Passover, which Jesus will transform into the first observance of the Lord's Supper. Now, let's look at our text in John chapter 13 and look at verse 1. It says, Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The first thing that we see here is that Jesus knew that his hour had come. What does that mean? What is John describing for us? What hour is being referred to here? Well, quite simply, the hour for Jesus to be glorified. That hour had arrived. Throughout the book of John, we repeatedly see Jesus saying his hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. Now he says, John says, that the hour has come. 
the key thing to understand is that the glorification of Jesus was not going to come through the triumphal entry. That had already happened. It was not going to come by a grand coronation as we saw this weekend in England. The glorification of Jesus was going to come through the humiliation of a brutal, torturous crucifixion on an old rugged cross. The hour had come for that to begin. That means that the time for his arrest, the time for his bogus trial, and the time for his agonizing execution had now come. This is a reminder that every single detail and event and circumstance of the life of Jesus was sovereignly ordered and maintained by God. Nothing happens by chance, ladies and gentlemen. There's no such thing as luck. Every bounce of the football, every event that happens, it's superintended by God. He allows evil things to happen, ultimately for his glory. But understand that every detail and circumstance of the life of Jesus was sovereignly ordered and maintained by God. Nothing happens outside of God's sovereignty. This hour that had come would be the fulfillment of all the prophecies and the foreshadowing of things to come from the Old Testament. This hour that had come would be the fulfillment of the salvation promises that God had designed and foreordained before the foundation of the world. This hour that had come would be the culmination of the diligent efforts of the suffering servant to be oppressed, smitten by God, and afflicted, chastised for the believer's peace. This hour that had come would be the Son of Man being lifted up so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. This is the hour. This is the apex of human history. The time when Jesus would bruise the head of the serpent, crush it, while his heel would be bruised. It's the hour when he would accomplish salvation for everyone who would make him the Lord of their life. It was an hour, a time like no other in human history. That hour, that most anticipated hour of all time had finally arrived. John chapter 13. It's what I called in my notes the beginning of the end. It's the beginning of the end of the life of Jesus here on in this earth. Verse 1 says that Jesus loved his own who were in the world, and it says that he loved them to the end. Let's look at the first part. It says that he loved them who were in the world. What does that mean? Well, if you have your, your books open, John 12 and John 13, turn back to John chapter 1. I think this is a reference back to John chapter 1. Verses 10 through 12, again, this is talking about Jesus. He is the Word made flesh who dwelt among us. It says in verse 10 that he was in the world, talking about Jesus, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name. This is talking about Jesus came unto his own, and his own received him not. I think John 13.1 is a reference back to that. Jesus loved the ones of his own creation, 
his own people who received him and believed in his name. In John 1, it's talking about he came unto his own, the Jewish race, and his own did not receive him. They were his people, but they did not receive him. But to those who received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. I think John 13, 1 is talking about those who received him as the Son of God, the disciples who received him and recognized him for who he was. Everything that follows in John chapters 13 through 17 are expressions and promises of love to Jesus, from Jesus to his own, to those who recognized who he was. What follows immediately here in chapter 13 is the first expression of his love towards his disciples as he washes their feet. Now, let's consider the, the phrase at the end, he loved them to the end. Now, one might, be might think that this is a reference to Jesus loving them until the end of his life. I don't think that's the case here. When you look at the original Greek language in which this was written, it means that word end means he loved them completely, totally, to the maximum capacity. So he loved his own people as much as anyone could ever love someone. What does this mean and why does John tell us this? Well, the reason is that this statement is being made because of what's going to happen in the next few verses. Jesus loved his own people, the ones who received him, who knew him, who recognized him as the Son of God, and he loved them so much, he loved them so completely that you're going to see how he demonstrated that love in a very small but significant way. Now let's look at verses 2 through 5. It says, And supper being ended, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. John completes the setting of this scene by describing other preceding events to verse 4. In verse 2, he says that the devil had already tempted Judas to betray Jesus, and Judas had wholeheartedly and willingly decided of his own volition, of his own accord, to betray the Son of God. Verse 3 says that Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. I believe this is reminiscent of John 6, 37 through 40, which says that Jesus speaking here, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus said, everyone that comes to me, I won't lose them. That's a reference here. The Father had given all things into the hands of his perfect, precious Son. Now look at what Jesus does in verses 4 and 5. It says, he rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel 
and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So Jesus gets up from supper. He removes his outer garments. He picks up a towel. He wraps it around his waist. And he basically dresses himself like a lowly slave. After this, he pours water into a basin. And he kneels down to wash the dirty feet of his disciples. As you can imagine in this culture, foot washing was not a very glamorous job. It was a lowly job. But it was a necessity. By the way, it's still a necessity today. It's still a good thing to wash your feet, right? But in this society, feet were filthy. You had sandals that were open. You were walking in mud, dirt, dusty situations. Nothing to cover your feet. When the disciples and Jesus had entered that upper room, nobody had washed their feet. Nobody washed their own feet. There wasn't a slave there to wash the feet for them. Jesus decides to get up, kneel down, and begin washing feet. As I was studying this, I thought of my, my nephew, Alex Dryman. He was up with my sister to celebrate the boys' graduation from high school uh, back in May. He was... Uh, running around, having a great time in our backyard. Uh, a lot of our celebration and things, family, were all in the backyard. He had flip-flops on, but he didn't wear those very much. He ran around barefoot all day long. It had just rained a lot a few days leading up to that. His feet were absolutely filthy. And I don't mean just dirty. They were black. They were filthy. It was nasty. We had our own impromptu foot washing ceremony for my nephew. I did not want that nastiness into the house. But while I directed him to have his feet washed, I didn't kneel down to wash his feet. That's not a pleasant job. I let his mother do that, my sister. She did that out of love for me, but also out of love for her son because she knew that he had dirty feet. He shouldn't be running around in the house. But he also did that, she did that as a demonstration of love toward us. During this time in history, from John chapter 13, foot washing was not pleasant or desirable. It was usually done by the lowliest of slaves, or at least by the person himself. We see here that Jesus humbled himself to wash the dirty feet of his disciples. There are other instances in scripture where people anoint or wash other people's feet. Whenever it's done, it's always done out of a sign of love, respect, and humility. In John chapter 12, you actually see uh, Mary washing the feet of Jesus with her tears after she anointed him. We see that throughout the Bible, that people wash other people's feet, but it's always out of love and humility. Now let's look at the reaction of the disciples. Verse 6. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will after this. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. 
Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? In verse 6, we see the reaction of Peter as he objects to what Jesus is doing, asking if Jesus is trying to wash his feet. He's the master. He's the Lord. Peter himself had articulated that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Are you kneeling down to wash my filthy feet? Throughout the gospel accounts, Peter tends to articulate what the rest of the disciples are too cowardly to say themselves. So the question arises from Peter, why are you doing this? Are you washing my feet? And the question I would ask is, why does Peter object to this? Well, again, as we mentioned, foot washing was only done by the lowliest of slaves. He had proclaimed that Jesus is the son of the living God. So you have Jesus, God's one and only son, kneeling down to perform a task that normally the lowliest of slaves would do. But I also think Luke 22 sheds some additional light into why Peter objected. In Luke 22:24, we see an extra part of this scene where I think it prompted Jesus to do this because it says in Luke 22 that a dispute arose among the disciples as to which of them would be regarded as the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This was a recurring issue with the disciples. We see it throughout the Gospels. They were constantly arguing and bickering about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They wanted to know if they were going to be in the most elevated position in the messianic kingdom that Jesus would establish. So again, you have the sinless son of God detaching himself from the crowds, pulling his disciples apart so that he can prepare them for him leaving. These are the men that are going to be entrusted with the gospel, with sharing the good news of Jesus Christ sharing with people that they are sinners headed for hell unless or until they repent and make Jesus Christ the Lord of their life. These men to whom the gospel is going to be entrusted are arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. I can tell you who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. It's Jesus Christ. It's nobody else. Nobody else has that elevated status other than Jesus. Not you, not me, not any pastor, not any missionary, not anybody who's won thousands of souls to Christ. Jesus is going to be the greatest in the kingdom. How much more odious and repugnant could the behavior of the disciples be at this moment? These self-absorbed, short-sighted, vacillating, doubtful followers of Jesus are arguing about who's going to be the greatest when Jesus is facing an agonizing death on their behalf. He's taking their punishment for their sins. He didn't commit any sins. There was no guile in his mouth. He was the sinless son of God, separated from sin. And they were arguing about who was going to be the greatest. They have no regard for what Jesus has been telling them 
that he's going to be betrayed, that he's going to be arrested, that he's going to be lifted up for the salvation of souls that do not deserve it. From a human standpoint, when I look at this scene and consider the disciples, this selfish, childish argument that they're having, and consider the wicked betrayer of Jesus is still in their midst. It's a wonder that Jesus didn't get up and just said, I'm done with all of you. That he didn't scold them and just leave the room. Instead, when the disciples are at their ugliest and most loathsome, sinful state, that's when the incomparable, supreme, humble love of Jesus Christ shines even more. Instead of sounding in on who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, he shows them what the greatest in the kingdom will do. He humbles himself. He kneels down and he begins to wash dirty feet. Jesus replies to Peter, Peter's objection by explaining that what he was doing had a bigger symbolic meaning from a spiritual perspective. He was doing a menial task, but it had a spiritual purpose behind it. Peter's reply by objecting even more is that, you're God's son, you should never be permitted to wash a disciple's feet. In this moment and in other passages throughout Scripture, Peter is behaving as if he's the authority and Jesus is his servant. Lord, you don't know what you're doing. You, you shouldn't be doing this. Peter, who are you to tell Jesus what he should or should not be doing? Think about who you are. Think about who you're speaking to. Jesus calmly brushes aside Peter's offensive rebuttal and explains the spiritual application here, which is if Jesus doesn't spiritually cleanse somebody, they can't be saved. They can't enter the heavenly eternal kingdom unless Jesus washes them of their sins. When Peter hears this, he proclaims that Jesus will then not just need to wash his feet, but also his hands and his head. And I think this is Peter beginning to understand the spiritual application here by admitting that not only have his feet gone to sinful places, but his hands and his head have committed sinful deeds as well. But Jesus explains through this spiritual application that the spiritual cleansing that, that Peter needs has already taken place. He's already had a bath. He's already been saved from his sins. He needs to be washed from the daily defilements of having dirty feet. Without diving into the details too much, I think Jesus is using this object lesson to explain the important difference between justification, being justified in the eyes of God, being saved from your sins, and sanctification, becoming more and more like Jesus Christ through recognizing your sins, repenting of those sins, asking for forgiveness, and becoming more and more like Jesus, being changed from the inside out. Justification happens when unbelievers recognize, admit, and repent from their sins and make Jesus Christ the Lord of their life. Sanctification begins right after justification. And it's the gradual transformation by the Holy Spirit, changing them from the inside out, to become practically more and more like Jesus. Jesus was telling Peter that he was clean, he was saved, he just needed to be washed. 
Jesus declares that all of them have been saved except for one. It's important to note that the Apostle John makes it clear that the one who would betray Jesus, namely Judas, was not clean and therefore was not saved. Now let's look at the explanation, verses 12 through 17. It says, When he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I've done to you? Verse 13, You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. In verses 12 through 17, we see Jesus explaining the object lesson to his disciples after this brief illustration of sanctification and salvation. Rather than lecturing his disciples on the benefits and the necessity of humility, Jesus demonstrated it by humbly and lovingly modeling humility, by washing their dirty feet, after having listened to their obnoxious argument about which of them was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. If the sinless, glorious Messiah himself, the one who will undoubtedly be the greatest in his kingdom, is willing to stoop down and wash the dirty feet of his self-absorbed disciples, surely the disciples would be willing to wash one another's feet. That's what Jesus is explaining here through his actions. He didn't have to give them a lecture. He just demonstrated it. And can you imagine, not just Peter, but the rest of the disciples, watching this man who had performed miracles, who had clearly demonstrated he was God's son, washing their dirty feet? It had to sting. It had to make them feel ashamed for that silly argument they had had, but also about the depths of humility that, that Jesus would stoop to in order to save us. That's our Savior. Jesus is demonstrating that his believers and followers should always be willing to do the unwanted, humiliating tasks of love that others aren't willing to do, not for their own glory, not for the glory of some institution, but for the glory of God. Ultimately, whatever you're doing, do it for the glory of God, not for yourself. What are the implications of this? First question may come up is, should foot washing be an ordinance of the church? Well, um, it's a fair question to ask, but I think it would be a little uncomfortable. I know in one of our passion plays, we actually did the foot washing scene uh, from one of our Easter plays. And I remember in one of the practices, one of our disciples actually stuck out his foot for Pastor Rick to wash his feet. And we were like, take it easy, we're just practicing, okay? We don't have to do this until the real thing. But the point was, was well taken. Should foot washing be something that we do regularly? Well, all kidding aside, I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that if a congregation had a foot washing ordinance, but I think it's very noteworthy to mention that the rest of the New Testament shows no churches observing a foot-washing ordinance. Even more importantly, 
I think mechanically performing such a service probably misses the point that Jesus is trying to make here. He's trying to drive home the fact that we need to be willing to serve others, no matter what the task is. He's not singling out this one foot washing thing. And I could see that ordinance becoming something where if we wash somebody's feet, then we've fulfilled the service of God. No, Jesus is opening this up. He's saying that we should be willing to do anything to love one another, to demonstrate that love through a humiliating task or some sort of uh, a self-abasement. Paul said, I've become all things to all men to see people one to Christ. We should be willing to do whatever is necessary to share the gospel and to demonstrate the love of Christ. That's what I think Jesus is trying to drive home here. He's trying to say that continual acts of humble submissive love toward others, elevating others above ourselves, is what we should aim to do. Later on in John chapter 13, you see in verses 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus is demonstrating that love through this act. The clear message from the Gospels is that the entire life of Jesus on earth was a repetitious, nearly constant exercise of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, humbling himself over and over and over again at his birth. Jesus was born in a borrowed bed that also happened to be a manger or a feeding trough for animals. In his childhood and teenage years, Jesus lived an ordinary, nondescript life in an ordinary, nondescript village learning obedience by submitting to his loving but sinful parents here on earth. In his adult life, he had to live in borrowed homes and makeshift beds as he ministered to others because even though foxes have holes and birds of the air had nests, the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. As we considered earlier, when he made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, allowing the crowds to recognize him as the promised Messiah and Son of David, even in that event... He had to use not just a borrowed donkey, but the cult of a borrowed donkey. When he celebrated his final Passover with his disciples, he used a borrowed upper room to host the meal. After he was brutally tortured and crucified on the cross, surely his humiliation had ended there, yet not quite. He had to use a borrowed tomb to lay his body. All of this is perfectly summarized in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. It says this, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant or a slave, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is demonstrating in this foot washing these verses. Ultimately, the ultimate fulfillment of these verses is given to us. It's through his crucifixion. But he's, once again, 
demonstrating that humility in John chapter 13. The life of Jesus was a continual exercise of humility, nonstop, all day, every day. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here to tell you that's God's will for you as well. It's God's will for all of us to humble ourselves, to be continually reminding ourselves that we're not as big and as important as we think we are, that we should be humbling ourselves, exalting others above ourselves. And I'm preaching to you just as much as I'm preaching to me because we are so prone to exalting ourselves, wanting to puff ourselves up. Look how great we are, when instead we should be humbling ourselves. While he was on this earth during his first advent, Jesus never stopped humbling himself because he never stopped being the sinless Savior who came to a sin-cursed earth to rescue hopeless sinners like you and me. He never stopped being perfect, but he always humbled himself. As the Apostle Paul stated in Philippians 2, Peter later says himself, so you have Peter learning what this application means, just like Jesus said he would. In 1 Peter 5, verses 5 and 6, it says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. Be clothed with humility. Why? For God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all of your cares upon him, for he cares for you. God cares for you this morning. That's why he wants you to humble yourself so that he can exalt you at due time. What's the conclusion? Well, throughout his amazing life, Jesus constantly and consistently demonstrated his ultimate supremacy through demonstrating ultimate humility. Here's my question for you. If the sovereign son of God, the second person of the Godhead, who was the agent of creation, who knows all things and controls all things, if he humbled himself in his life, in this sin-cursed world, then why on earth would we ever think that we shouldn't do the same? Why would we, who are far lesser, far weaker, vastly inferior to Jesus in our knowledge and our power, why would we ever think we have a right to be proud, to thump our chests, to tell people, look how great we are? One way I remind myself to be humble is to remember that I am completely dependent on God and I am constantly relying on his mercy and grace in every moment of my fragile life. Take a deep breath. Let it out. That breath was a gift from God. It's a breath that you didn't deserve. It's a breath that he gave you. Did you know that God was not obligated to wake you up this morning? He wasn't. He woke you up this morning to live not for your own glory, but for the Lord's. Most notably, all of us here are sinners. We deserve an eternity of suffering in a place called hell, separated from God forever because of our sins against a holy, sinless creator. But God demonstrated his own love toward us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we admit that we are sinners who fall short of the glory of God with no hope of heaven on our own. And we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the one and only Son of God who lived a perfect life and died a perfect death so that my punishment could be punished at the cross and his righteousness could be credited to me when I don't deserve it. When we make that recognition, we make him the Lord of our life. We're saved. We're saved from our sin. Anything short of that is not salvation. 
It's a pep talk. It's a ruse. Making Jesus Christ the Lord of your life. Humbling yourself to say, I can't make it to heaven on my own. I can't make it to heaven by working in Awana. I can't make it to heaven by teaching a Sunday school class. I can't make it to heaven by giving money to the church. I can only make it to heaven by making Jesus the Lord of my life. Humbling myself to serve him rather than me. That's the only way you can be saved. Remember, as we read earlier in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. There's no sin too big for Jesus to forgive you of. Anybody who comes to Jesus, he will not cast out, but you have to come to him humbly. You can't come to him with all your accolades and accomplishments. The only accomplishment that accomplishes salvation is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what about you today? Have you been thoroughly washed by Jesus? Maybe you're unsure of your spiritual condition. If you are, I would have you ask this question. If you died today, where would you be one second after your last heartbeat? Have you ever made a decision to submit your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, to make him the Lord and master of your life? If you have never done that, I'm here to tell you the good news, the gospel, that Jesus Christ came to die for you so that you could be saved. But Jesus himself said, in order to save your life, you have to lose it. You have to commit self-identity suicide. I'm no longer my own boss. Jesus is the master of my life. Salvation is through humility. There's wisdom in humility. You have to make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life in order to be saved. Are you humble enough to make Jesus the Lord of your life and to be used by God to glorify him? Maybe some of you are saved today. You've been thoroughly washed. The question I would ask you is, who are you serving as you go about your day, as you go about your week? Are you trying to lift yourself up? Are you trying to lift up some group or institution or even a church? Are you trying to glorify God? Everything that this church stands for is sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. But ultimately, Crosspoint Baptist Church is not who we're to glorify. We're to glorify God. We do that by serving faithfully here. This is a precious body of believers. It's so precious to God, he gave his son to die for it. This is a precious church, but our job is not to exalt ourselves. It's to exalt Jesus Christ. So today, if you've never been saved, if you've never made Jesus Christ the Lord of your life, I would urge you to do that. If you are saved, I would ask yourself to humbly examine your heart. Why do you do what you do? And if it's not for the glory of God, make it for the glory of God. Be willing to do what other people aren't willing to do. You'll have a chance right after the service. we got a chair stacking ministry. You can help us stack chairs. It's a dirty job, but somebody's got to do it, right? All kidding aside, why do you do what you do? I would urge you to glorify the Lord by submitting to him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for this opportunity to present your word, and I pray 
that you will use my feeble words, your word of God, to convict hearts. For those who need to be saved from their sin, I pray that they would choose to submit to the Lordship of Christ. For those of us who are saved, I pray that we would be willing to submit to loving others and esteeming others better than ourselves. Ultimately, Lord, we want to glorify you. We want to lift you up. I pray that your name will be exalted and high and lifted up today. We'll thank you for it all. In Jesus' name, amen. As Brother Andrew leads us in a song of invitation, I would urge you, if you need to make a decision for Christ, you have an opportunity to do it right now before you leave this room. You can make that decision in your seat. You can come to the altar and pray. You can come to one of us after the service and ask how you can be saved. But I'd urge you to make that decision before it's too late. Brother Andrew. dismiss uh you heard me say we're going to be stacking the chairs we were planning to have the lord's supper tonight but we are postponing that since pastor is unable to be here we will reschedule that probably for later this month we'll make it known uh, when that rescheduling is final but i would expect it to be one of the other sundays here in september uh, so be aware that there will be no lord's supper tonight pastor is planning to do facebook live at seven o'clock i don't know how lengthy it'll be but he is planning to do that at seven o'clock so you could tune in for that be aware also that wednesday and thursday we've kicked back into our normal fall schedule we have family nights on wednesday at 6 30 we have grief share at seven o'clock on thursday with that you are dismissed <laughs>